You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road in Hillsboro, North Carolina. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. After lunch, we will get in a car and we'll go somewhere, and it may be a store or somewhere else, or you know, anywhere this week, and the chances of us losing our life for the sake of Christ is foreign to us. It does not exist. And so when we sing that song, what do we mean when we're talking about losing our life for the sake of Christ? Does it mean that we're going to struggle to get up on Sunday morning to get to church? Is that what losing your life for Christ is? I think there's there's got to be more to it than that. There's got to be more. Jesus didn't call us to to, um, go through the pain of pulling off covers to get dressed up to come to church. He did not go through the cross and all of that just so we would feel inconvenience in maybe traveling a little further or dealing with weather that is not optimal on a Sunday morning. I listened to a lot of things this weekend at the men's conference, and honestly, that was another one of those spots where I felt like there were, there were times when I'm looking at my life and going I'm just sad because of where I am in my relationship with God and at the same time getting mad going why is that happening and why does that have to occur and and what privilege do I have in doing what I do and somebody else has something else in their life? That may not make sense. I mean, you know, if you were at that conference, it would make a little bit of sense. But I, I want to take just a couple of minutes, and, and I, I should have kind of warned these guys, because um, it was all guys. It was a men's conference. We would kind of expect it, right? Um, I did not give them any warning. But I want to take just a couple of minutes and um, ask if you guys that went on the conference, if you would like to share something, I want to give you, like, take a minute to just share what God may have said to you or, or encouraged you in or convicted you in during that conference. Would anybody like to do that?
seeing his heart as well um, and being able to just rejoice and then at the same time being set free from something that was set to me as a child uh, just meant all the world to me that it was worth it. What an awesome weekend. And I just want to say this that the guys that was there have something that the rest of you guys don't have. And challenge every single one of the guys to be there next to you without excuse. It's powerful. It holds two, two, the three sessions that we were in. It was awesome. Just make a point to be there. There's no excuse. We have something, the guys that was there, including this awesome man right beside me. We've got something the rest of you guys don't have. I hope that puts a little peach in your heart. I was really challenged this, week, this weekend with um, Pastor Gaines' priest on prayer. Gosh, I mean, I just. He talked about the hand of God will not move without prayer. And I'm like, how little I really do pray in my own life. And how I really need to get serious about my prayer life. And I think when we as men, there's 211 churches there represented. And if we as men will get serious about praying for the hand of God to move, we couldn't hold on to the greatest place. I'll meet you halfway. So I think uh, one of the amazing things that I didn't see here, um, kind of in our country, is the fact that miracles are still happening every day. Convicting to the fact that we think that we do a lot um, for the things that we do. We get up, we come, we serve. A couple weekends we might come rake some leaves. Um, but there's people out there that are actually putting their life on the line and dying for Christ. And it was amazing to me to hear those stories and to recognize that God is still active. Um, and that's an amazing thing. You know, places like China, other places that I haven't studied about, there's millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people that are coming to Christ because of the amazing work people are doing. We have a lot of opportunity in front of us. So. <laughs> so, I don't know about prayer as well, and I need to pray, and it just really got to me how I really need to pray, and I'm free to do so, and like we talked about how Daniel wasn't. That really struck me that I need to pray every day, and I feel like I've just really failed in that area. And yeah.
you can tell he's been through a lot, he's seen a lot in those war-torn countries. And so I wrote down on the little bulletin that we had from the weekend and underlined it. Do not forget what I am. When I am leaving on the table, when it comes to serving God each and every day. And I think that's a challenge for all of us. So if we look at the idea of what it means to follow Christ, we have to ask ourselves a question. Or being a disciple of Christ, what does that mean? What does that entail? I know that some of it means that I'm going to copy something. Because we talk about being a disciple, we're talking about emulating something or copying something. We all have heroes, right? And they can, they can be in various forms. It, it may be a hero that uh, because of a because they're a sports figure, or they may be a hero because of um, cooking skills. Oh. I've watched some pretty decent cooking, like the kids cooking stuff, and amazing chefs like under ten or something. Um, they could be a hero. We may have heroes in music, and we may have heroes of the faith or a, a spiritual hero. I think of a guy back in my very first church when I first got saved that I, I just looked up to him. And it wasn't because he was perfect. In fact, he messed up at some point in the same way that David messed up with Bathsheba. And yet, there was still something about him and his relationship to God that, that I just kind of looked at him like, the relationship to God part I want and I don't know if I can explain all those pieces because I wasn't around him all the time, but there was a part of his life that I wanted to emulate. There was, there was a part of his existence that spoke, I belong to God and I want to share that. There was another guy that, that was my hero. And he, he had the same name. And it wasn't, he wasn't my hero because we had the same name. He just happened to be a Robert. And, and we would travel, and I've told you this before, a little bit about my story and how I came to know Christ. Is he was willing to step out in boldness and share with me about Jesus and a relationship with him as opposed to a religious activity that I had grown up in. So he was a hero of, of faith. He wasn't perfect either. I knew stuff about him that nobody else knew. But he was a hero. And then there's cultural emulation where we copy culture, trying to do something, and it may be dress or language or, or politics or something like that. I asked Debbie this morning, I said, yeah, I'm just feeling kind of radical today. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, I feel like I want to go untucked. <laughs> she went, oh no, oh no, you're not. I said, well, actually the whole story was untucked in jeans, but, but we'll leave that one alone. Um, but it's, it's just one of the things, we may have these cultural things that, 
that we want to do, or we want to accomplish. And even, even in the church, we have expectations, right? But you expect certain things when you show up. Some of you expect coffee to be back over there in the kitchen on Sunday morning. Some of you expect coffee in other places in the building. Some of you expect this room to be a certain temperature, and when it's not, you let somebody know that it's too cold or it's too warm. You have expectations. There's some expectations on dress, such as you don't expect to see me in jeans and an untucked shirt. That's an expectation. It's just a cultural thing. So we, we sometimes culture or follow culture. We base it on our values. And, and for us as a church, we have some values. We have biblical teaching is about unity, fellowship, prayer, or at least a token exhibit of prayer. We, we may need to qualify that a little bit. There's an expectation or a cultural value of, of just taking an offering. Like if the ushers didn't come down at the end of that last song before the choir sang, and they weren't standing by the door with plates at the end of the service, there'd be people that would be disturbed, that would be upset, mostly financing. <laughs> but often we associate discipleship with religion, and it encompasses so much more. We associate it with religion often to the detriment or demise of ourselves. The essence of discipleship in Jewish life was all about emulation or copying, and when the process was complete, you'd be able to look at somebody who's a disciple of a rabbi or teacher, you'd be able to look at their life and say, I see no difference between the disciple and the teacher. I see no difference between the learner and the leader. Discipleship represented a way to preserve the essence of a nation. And it came out of the idea that the people of God had moved away or drifted away from who God was and following his commands. They had forgotten what was told to Joshua in the beginning of Joshua where he said, go and take over and go in there, but keep my commands. Do all that I said. And they had walked away from that kind of, that kind of um, set of parameters for um gaining the promise of God and, and all those kind of things. And so what would happen is that as the nation drifted and the nation got taken to exile, there were some that said, we have to figure out a way to remind people that it's our responsibility to follow the commands of God and put him as first place in our nation. So, they, so discipleship was part of that. How can we copy this idea of behavior that honors God. So they put it in place, and what would happen is the student would choose the teacher, and the student would choose the teacher based on what the teacher represented or the teacher's life. And then they would fall under the authority of that teacher and the understanding of that teacher's interpretation of God's law. They would observe and copy every part of life or behavior. They would wrestle with real life issues. What am I supposed to do in this situation or that situation? And when it came down to it, they would look at the law and the situation and ask the teacher, what am I supposed to do? And so they would toss stuff back and forth and go back and forth. 
and have this banter, and, and the teacher would come in, and he would kind of settle, settle the argument, or settle the wrestling with, with life and law. The student was open to the scrutiny of the teacher. And so the teacher, at any particular point, the rabbi, at any particular point, could come along and say, why did you do that? Why did you make that choice? Why is your behavior this? Why is it not this? In an effort to help that student learn what it was to follow that particular teacher. The goal is to make consistent, deci consistent decisions based on the rabbi's life and interpretation of the law. And so in this particular case, it was authority and behavior joined together. Authority and behavior. And so that's exactly why, because of that joining, that we see that the Pharisees and scribes often had an issue with Jesus. Because Jesus joined some things together that weren't part of that equation. Authority and behavior equal good. And Jesus said, and he took it just one step further, he said, hey, you're under the authority of God, your behavior ought to change, but you are also under grace and relationship. And they missed that last element. They missed the relationship part. It's the exact thing that I experienced when I was in the Catholic Church, and it was about behavior, confessionals, and going to a priest and saying, this is what I did, this is what you need to tell me to do to fix it. It was exactly that. And Jesus is moving out of that and saying, you go to God, but it's all about relationship. It's not about checking to see, and those of you that have a Catholic background, it's not figuring out whether the light is green or red, if somebody's in there or not in there in the confession. It is about a relationship with God that goes beyond the scope of normal. So in today's passage, Jesus flips the concept of discipleship and he chooses and invites. He pits our behavior uh, against or, or making in parallel with inward condition, making a case for what is more important. And it all goes back to, if you remember at least one story where we talk about the the person of Saul, King Saul, where he is rejected. In 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7 says, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, this is the, the changing of the guard from Saul to David. And so Samuel goes to choose a, a new king for Israel, and they get there and go through Jesse's sons. It says, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of stature, because I have rejected him. And man, those are words to cut with your dad. And somebody's talking about your son like that. Because I have rejected him. And it wasn't a rejection because he wasn't spiritual enough or tall enough or good looking enough, couldn't do the job physically. The rest of the verse says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. Seven sons in that case, no luck, but there's one more. Let's bring him in. Let's take a look at him. God's heart is always set out for our hearts. And he always wants all of it. 
And what a peace. What's all of it? Mark chapter 2. We need to finally get that. Mark chapter 2 says this, starting in verse 1. It says, and when he returned, no, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Sorry, that's, that's why I wouldn't come up on the screen. In the wrong verse. Verse 14. And as he passed by, he's still in the Capernaum area around the seashore, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he, Levi, rose and followed him. That's, that's kind of crazy in and of itself. Jesus walks by this guy and says, Follow me. So the invitation is given right up front to, to Levi and says, Leave that. Don't you know there was a lot involved in that statement? Follow me. Here's a guy who's used to taking tax money. He's hired to take tax money. He makes his living that way. And Jesus comes along, he says, follow me. And it's the, it's the flip of that, I choose you. But no, this time Jesus chooses son of Alphaeus, Levi, to say, come, let's go. And so what Levi has to do is he has to get up from his table and walk away from money, walk away from position, walk away from status, walk away from security, and even step into a treasonous relationship with Rome to follow Jesus. The call on Levi's life was one, are you willing to lose your life? For my sake, come follow me. Give it up. Are you willing to lose your life? Because for Levi, it was relinquishing any other authority besides Jesus' authority. It's interesting that Jesus has authority anyways, and us recognizing it is just part of what we have to come to grips with. Matthew 28 says all authority has been given to God. Colossians 1, that he brought all things into being, all things are for him, but are also sustained by him. It seems to me in that he has authority. There's nothing outside the realm of what Jesus can do. So the question is, is the definition of being a disciple different today? I would say that we may have changed it. You can be a disciple of many things. You can be a disciple of status or image, of political stance or morality, even a denomination, and still miss the point of being a disciple of Jesus. You can be a fan or highly interested, maybe even committed to something, but still not a disciple of Jesus. There's a difference between being a disciple of Jesus and a disciple of others. There's a difference between being a disciple of Jesus and being an attender of the church. Attending church is not being a disciple. Sometimes we measure discipleship by attendance. We kind of take a look at the outward appearance. We don't consider the heart or the inward condition. Jesus calls us for inward condition. 
supposed to be an environment, churches, where discipleship is cultivated and spreads. Not just a place of checking off the line. Discipleship is cultivated and spreads. And so Jesus calls Levi, and as he reclined at the table, verse 15, in his house, and so he goes to the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were there were many who followed him, and this is a different kind of follow. They just went along. They got part of the crowd. They were included in the group. They were attenders in a meal. So they followed him, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does Jesus do that? For those that were these disciples, these that were asking questions, there were some really interesting things happening. One, Jesus was in a place that they thought he shouldn't be. Following Jesus will often take us to places that everybody else say we shouldn't be. And yet, if God calls us there to share the gospel with somebody that is dying and going to hell, that's exactly what we need to do. <clears throat> Second part of this is pretty interesting because when Jesus answers their question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard it and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus is exactly what Jesus wants to be. And then this weird question here. A weird, strange mix that takes place. It says, and John's, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So they were doing what was normal behavior for a follower. They were doing it, and it was usually two days a week they would fast, and and on this particular day, which was a set day, Jesus' disciples were not doing what the expected behavior was. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered them. So while the bridegroom's here, we don't fast, we don't mourn. It's a time of celebration. To be a disciple of Jesus, you begin by hearing his voice and seeing and experiencing the grace of God. And what the disciples had experienced, Jesus' disciples, was the grace of God applied to their life. We look at scripture and go through and Adam and Eve. Think of, just think about these people. Adam and Eve, who sinned, they had pride, they, they bought the lie that they could be like God, and yet God brought a covering on them. And poured grace on them. Abraham and Sarah, desiring a child, yet seeing the opportunity to carry on the name of Abraham, thought that it would be a good idea to involve Hagar with the eventual birth of Ishmael. Not a good idea. God poured his grace on Abraham and Sarah, who was born to them, the son Isaac, who would eventually end up on an altar when God would provide a ram, a sacrifice in place of the son. 
that Moses from Pharaoh's household saved as a baby, pulled out of the river and brought up to be part of royalty, to looking at the slavery around him and his people group, being taken advantage of and worked like dogs. And in response to that, in an act of reaction, murders somebody and ends up in exile. But God takes him and pours grace on him and says, you come by this bush and take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. And he meets with God in a place and says, I'm going to use you. Your murderous past and your exiled existence does not exempt you from following me and, and jumping into the plan that I have for you. Be a people that will lead my people out of Egypt. Be a person that will be my declaration to a Pharaoh that has nothing to do with me. Moses is one of those guys. David is an adulterer and a murderer. And yet he's considered a man after God's own heart. Nehemiah was a cupbearer in a foreign land and basically just a cupbearer. Yet he became the one who rallied the troops to build a wall back around Jerusalem and restore the reproach that was placed on a nation that went to exile because they disobeyed God. Hosea, which is one of the strangest stories in all of Scripture, he's told to marry a prostitute that keeps running away from him to, to show how the nation of Israel had walked away from God and continued to walk away from God with all the efforts of somebody who loved them trying to regain their affection. A woman caught in adultery, destined for stoning, and Jesus lifts up. Saul, the persecutor of the church, becomes Paul, the evangelist, the missionary. So we read that, and then we listen, and Jason Sheridan said, why does this not happen now? Can we apply it? Can we get to the place where we say, okay, all these people listed in Scripture, and I've messed up, and there's no way God can use me, and then we turn around and say, if God's grace is really going to be available and applied to me, then what about God's grace on us? How has it been applied to you? There is nothing lovely about my life prior to Christ. I was a good kid. There was nothing lovely pleasing to God prior to Christ. My spirit, one of my spiritual heroes, Robert, who shared with me, led me to come to know Christ on April 13, 1980. It was no longer a child of, the, of wrath, but a child of the king. It was an available grace. It was a wrapped gift, shrouded and hidden until it was revealed and unwrapped and applied to my life. When we moved, I had to get rid of a lot of things. Some of it was fun. I left paint cans in the garage. Fire. Surely the next owner will want to use the same paint colors. I think every room has changed colors since then. The paint still in the cans is just paint in the cans. 
It has no effect. It doesn't have an effect until somebody with more muscle than me shakes that can and it mixes it all up and then you open the can, stick a brush in it, and put it on the wall, right? It's just a can of paint until it's applied. The grace of God has no effect unless it is applied. It can be available but not applied. It's just a gift of God sitting wrapped in a corner with no application. I want to show you what happens when you apply paint. When you apply paint, and this is applied in the preschool this morning, when you apply paint, when you apply the grace of God to your life, what becomes evident is the cross. The cross of Christ in you, in your life, applied, means all the difference in the world to those that live in darkness. Apply the grace of God. Grace has to be applied. But grace also comes with authority. We think, oh, I'm under authority. No, you're given authority. Jesus sent out the group in, in his name with the authority of Christ to go and do what he was doing. So why do we shy away from being a disciple? Why do we hold back? So Jesus in this passage says there are times of Morning, and there are times of celebration while the bridegroom is there. We celebrate. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day, or they will mourn in that day. What Jesus was doing is he was pointing to a cross, but he was also pointing to a season in history where things changed. The paradigm changed from behavior to relationship. to change. And we see that in this next section. It says that no one sews a piece of unstrung cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, due from the old. The worst tear is made. Then verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. He's just giving an illustration of what, how things coexist, how things are matched up. And, and what he's saying is, you want, you want the grace of God applied to your life? You're not required to do everything that's in the law to please God. It's, a, it's the same argument that was happening in the church of, of the Galatians. Is they said, we want the grace of God, and then they kept going back to the law and saying, the law, the law applies to us. And, and what Jesus is saying is, there is there's something that is different about what is old and what is new. And you can't go, they, they because we know that they are somewhat connected, but they're not attached. They're complementary, but they're not conjoined. Me put it in some some other terminology. We think about certain things here. We rely on it for accomplishing something. 
This past weekend at the men's conference, one of the things that was brought out is the difference between a resource and a source. Here's the way it works for us here. The North Campus is a resource. It's a resource. We shared in the family meeting last Sunday night that the goal is to pay off the resource by 2023. By asking those to give, those that are already giving to the North Campus to continue what they're doing. But then asking everybody to say, we will give $20.23 twice a month in order to gain another $175,000 to $200,000 in income for North property. Essentially $40 a month extra. With the idea that we need to pay it off because that campus is a resource. I'm going to include me in this. We have to quit looking back to things that steal the attention of God's people from what and where God may be leading us to go. Hear that. I spend my time looking backwards. This was part of what I wrestled with. Was the idea of how long it's taken to pay off the old campus. The North Campus has taken us way too long to pay off. And I think it's because we, we said the resource is more important than anything else. We have this great resource that's piece of land and the school and Master's Garden is doing crazy, wonderful things up there, but it is still a resource. It's our job as we think about the history of our church and that particular campus and that particular purchase, and we can go into other things as well, is to say that in this particular case, that is a resource, but we need to go to the source because there is a reason own it. There's something God wants us to do with it until we get it paid off or at least get close to it. We will not be able to go that far. History is not an excuse for not doing what God wants us to do in the future. Law and grace are complementary but not conjoined. So I want to ask a couple of questions. These are not going to feel very good. I just kind of tell you up When did the cost of discipleship get cheapened and equated with showing up for church? And then where has the desire gone for emulating the person of Christ? It's not about seeking more knowledge. Matthew 6, 31 through 34 talks about seeking first his kingdom, therefore do not be anxious. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you, that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. 
Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So it's not about seeking more knowledge. So discipleship's not about showing up for a class so you can fill your money. Although, being in a class and wrestling with the issues of life so you know how to follow Jesus is part of the process. It's not seeking more comfort. To know him, the power of his resurrection, sharing his sufferings, become like him in death. It's a whole lot harder. Here's what it says in, in Philippians 3. It says, For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory of God of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And this is Paul and he says, though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks his reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he's willing to stack up your confidence for the flesh against his confidence in the flesh. He's willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with me. He's willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with me and he says, I've got I've got a man. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. So that's according to the law of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, which meant I keep all of them. There's not, there's not anything I missed. And as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, which seemed to be the right thing to do at the time for him. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I can't pull out of the parking lot of the church and declare that. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, or for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. It comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And here's the kicker. That I may know him. That I know him. And the power of his resurrection so far so good. And may share in his sufferings. Again, just taking a step back. Coming like him in his death. Lose my life. Is that in that song he sang? Become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The call to discipleship goes beyond church attendance, it goes beyond just getting by and saying, yeah, I belong to Christ. The call to discipleship is an all-in request by God for us that makes a difference. God is our source. Not just a resource on the edge, but a, He's our source. Christ is our source. And being a disciple of Jesus by the grace of God becomes our life. Not just a facet I've got to wrestle with these things too. Same passages. Same ideas. 
Jesus can't be peripheral. He can't be on the edge. He's got to be all of it. Every facet of our life, actually our life, the glory of the Lord. And, and if we do that, he will descend on this body or this family called Ebenezer, our church family, and we will see revival. But not just because we show up, but because we're intently focused on the one who is the rabbi, the teacher, willing to submit that all, to all that he has to speak. There's a dichotomy in this passage, this new wine, old wine, skins, cloth. And I'm just telling you that if we're going to be a church that makes a difference in this community, we're going to have to be different than we are. Passion for Christ is going to have to exceed our passion for everything else. Jesus didn't call for less. He called for exactly that. All of us to him. I want us to pray. The ribbon's a little bit different this morning. Which different is not becoming different anymore, is it? This is this is what is gonna happen. The invitation is there to follow Christ with all that you are. I trust that you're in this place because there's a part of you that says, I understand that God is important. But I'm what I'm hoping, and what I'm praying for, that it wouldn't be just a, yeah, God, I understand you're important, you need to be kind of part of what I do. And, I would really like to claim you at some point. And I really want heaven too, by the way, just in case you missed that. I want us to consider the possibility that we'd be willing to give up everything for the sake of Christ. And if persecution became the norm here, that we would still adhere to the person of Christ. <coughs> regardless of the consequences. I don't know if we're getting there, and I don't know how, if we are, I don't know how fast it's going to happen. But I do know that in between doesn't please God. And so, this altar is going to be open. I'm going to be over here, somewhere over on that side. Curry's already over on that side, and Scott's already on that side, and uh, we're just going to kind of hang out in, on the sides. And if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, it is the most important decision that you can ever make. It is that applied grace that takes you from a child of wrath to a child of the King. And I would invite you to come to know Him as your Savior this morning. So we're going to be on the sides to maybe have that conversation with you if you're in here and don't know where you'll spend eternity. We're also going to be on the sides that say, hey, I'd like to be part of this church, this church family, and I want to commit to that. We're going to be on the sides to talk about that as well. And there are others in here that could have that conversation with me. 
that the center section this morning is not about coming to greet any of the three of us or anybody else. It's, it's here for you to come and spend a moment with God and say, God, here I am, all of me, take it. I'm ready to follow, I'm ready to get up from my desk and leave it all, even if it means treason as others see my life. I'm willing to do that. So the altar is open. And, and honestly, I want this to be a place of seriousness, not just a place where you come and go, oh, I feel good now. I want it to be one of those things where you go, I'm in. I'm in. Whatever it leads. If it leads me to another country, so be it. If it leads, leads me to lose my life, so be it. Whatever it is, are you in? So sitting in a call to separate the church, like you're good church people and you're bad church people. It's not that at all. It's just an invitation to God. So let's pray. As God leads you, this altar is open. And we'll be on the side for any conversation if you want to have. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the depth of the call on our life to follow you. God, it's so much deeper than, than we realize and so much more involved. But God, as we submit to your authority, you pour grace on us and take us from a place where we're slightly attached to God or not attached at all, you bring us to that place where we are willing to give our life because you are worth all worship and all honor and all glory. You are holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Father, you are worth following. And so God, this altar is open and we ask that you would Use this time to set us apart from you that we may be the people of God that you've called us to. I thank you for your grace and your patience and your mercy. Be glorified in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the song we play as you come as God leads you.
saying a lot of different things that I was sort of thinking about, declaring to God and that. So I just want to invite us to, to stay and sing that song again this morning. And maybe, um, maybe consider these lyrics a little differently than we did at the beginning today. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.